The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and with me today is Anne Louise Metz. Now, Anne Louise is a guest today because she's had an incredibly interesting career with lots of transitions. So she's currently a director of investor relations and marketing communications at a listed company in the Netherlands. She has, though, been an editor of a Moscow Weekly. She's been an interpreter translator on a Western Russian oil joint venture. She's been at a bank. She's been at a leading communications firm in a completely different country, specializing in M&A transactions. So quite a range. And our purpose for today is to talk about exactly that, the transitions, transitions across disciplines, transitions across geographical cultures, transitions from entrepreneur to corporate, and also transitions from company culture to company culture. And what we're going to talk about is what's happened, what she learned, what's her advice, and how she made those transitions smooth. So Anne Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Juana. Looking forward to hearing this. Okay, so Anne Louise, I want to start. Let's do this first bit. I want to talk about transitioning across disciplines. In particular, especially for the experts who are listening to this one and in the expertise-driven world of today, most of my clients believe that transitioning across leaving your specialist area for another or a product area for a different product area or for that matter an industry sector for a different ex- industry sector is next to impossible. But you've done both finance and communications in your career. How did that work out? Hmm. Yeah, it is always a little tricky. Um, it is something that you've got to do carefully. Um, I've done both, uh, and I, I, I kind of bounced back between both of them over my whole career. Um, I would say the trick is you've got to be sure that the two things that you choose um, have a relationship with each other that may or may not be apparent to the rest of the world, but that is visible to you. So what I mean by that is when I was in, uh, my career started off, in at least early in my career, I was doing M&A and, um, and with an investment bank here in Europe. And I could see that one of the areas, uh, one of the things that didn't go smoothly or that was an issue for the people, the experts who in, in, in the financial world um, was communicating the transaction, the benefit of the transaction uh, to uh, to investors, but also to a broader audience's media, uh, employees, and other stakeholders, and that that 
um, that that discipline was really complementary to the finance uh, that we were doing, uh, but that almost no one who had a finance background also had a communications background. So there, there was a sort of um, you know, a, a, a hiatus. I mean, there's a gap between the two, and the two actually had sort of trouble that experts in communications and experts in finance didn't really talk to each other very... I mean, they couldn't connect very well. And they didn't, the one didn't take the other one very seriously, and, the, the, you know, and, 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 and vice versa. The other one thought that the, you know, that the, 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 the finance specialists were maybe just too numbers-driven and didn't get didn't get how to bring important messages into a broader community. And so the real, the trick there was things that seem very different um, but are really important to each other and then being, you know, being able to then move from finance into communications did make a lot of sense and, you know, was an obvious step. Um, but it wouldn't have made a lot of sense, you know, if it had been something that was, you know, I just woke up one day and thought I'd really like to be an artist. Um, that would have been much harder for me to, to, to make that transition or, or aside from the skill set, it would be much less logical. So I always talk with people that I'm working with about this need to broaden their career experiences. Because if you stay in a narrow discipline, you run out of bandwidth pretty quickly for how far you're going to go. You kind of get stuck at the top of that specialty area. And if you can broaden, then you've got lots of options that you can do. And besides, it gets a little more interesting. You're learning new things. Mm -hmm. And I always say to people something similar to what you're saying in that you look at prior experiences where you've had a touch point with other areas. Right. And you use those touch points. Maybe it's a project or, in your case, a transaction that you've worked on or something else that gives you some credibility with that other group, some exposure to that other group so they're willing to take a chance on you. And that's what you're saying. It's find the adjacencies, even if they're quite different. Exactly. I think that's absolutely key. Um, and, And if you can, it's sort of if you can, if you're in one specialism and you can see the other one from where you're standing... Then you should be able to get there. Um, but if it's so far away from what you do that you really have no idea what it's about, then it's a lot. It, it just is a lot harder, I think. Okay. All right. So now I can imagine you get yourself to a place where you can see that I could move between these two disciplines, and there's a lot of benefit gained. Now you got a peer set around you who don't necessarily have that vision. So how do you communicate to your? How do you convince your M and A colleagues that you? Are credible to them, and how do you convince your communications colleagues that M and A is actually useful to them? Yeah, it's it's really it's funny because you you do um, you do get looked at differently uh, when you say you've you've you ha- you know you've you've added this other discipline to your background. So um, indeed, the the M and A uh, advisor would tend to. Um, Tend to look at the communications person as not not you know having the the hard number experience that they have and uh, the financial analysis tools and so forth and and might might think that that was a, a sort of a lighter role and I see that um, I see that uh, regularly. On the other hand, when you you know you also sort of lose credibility among 
among the other uh, yeah. new discipline because they think, you know, uh, you don't really know about messaging, you don't really know about marketing, and you don't really know about communications because you're a finance person. Um, so, you know, you didn't, you know, you, you, you have slightly less credibility with both. And then really your, I think your interpersonal skills really have to play a role there. And, um, and showing people really by just, you know, doing things alongside them where your, uh, cross-discipline, um, background, uh, complements theirs. And so that, you know, w- what you're doing is not trying to compete with them necessarily in their area, but you're, you're, you're complementing what what they what can be done as a team, and and broadening out that spectrum because you should have flow between the two disciplines, and then I really it's really you know the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's it's really when they get down to working with you is when I find out that people start to sort of rethink uh, the maybe the prejudices they had about one or the other discipline. All right, so a bit of patience on your part, then knowing that if you can get to the work, they'll come alongside. Yeah, exactly. You have okay. to be able to get to the work, though. <laughs> That's the tough part. <laughs> that, I can imagine is a hard part. And I know you're right also that even though, you know, like let's say you start in a communications area and you're seen as a communications specialist, that when you move into M&A, your um, communications colleagues start to go, well, I thought you were this, but you're not. And they start treating you completely differently than they did before. Yeah, that's right. It's, that is right. Um, and I spent a lot of, because I've, you know, at this point I've been, I've been working for about 25 years. Um, and I spent a lot of time combating a sort of prejudice one way or the other that I was, you know, uh, uh, a comms person or, or a financial person and, and sort of walking in the room and having gained a reputation in the comms area. Um, to be taken seriously by uh, by f- financial anal- analysts or, or M&A specialists or other investment bankers, then also a lot of work with IPOs now. Um, that took uh, that, that 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 took a lot of energy, and you have to sort of be willing to just you know accept that for a while. Indeed, have a little patience, and um, and and but it beca- it does become apparent quickly what the uh, what the benefit what what you're bringing to the party. Okay, so huge amount of patience. All right, any other tricks along the way here that help you make this transition from one discipline to another? Well, I think um, it's hard. To, it, it is important to keep track of how your your reputation in the market is developing. So, in a way, um, I've, I tried really hard. I don't know if whether I failed or, or succeeded, but I, I tried really hard not to let myself become too labeled as one or the other. Uh, because it's hard to shake that off. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I did try to sort of tone it down a little bit when I was being presented as a comms expert, and uh, I made sure that people always mentioned uh, my other areas of expertise when, when introducing me or bringing me into a team, um, because it's very easy to be pigeonholed otherwise. So you, you do have to kind of keep an eye on, on how, you're, how you're being viewed by, by the outside world. Okay, so be practical about this one for a minute. Let's say a senior person has pigeonholed you as a finance person versus a comms person. How do you go to that person and say, wait a minute, you got me in too narrow of a box? Because you're right, organizations like narrow boxes. We can deal with you when we get you in a box. Yeah. Um, Well, that becomes a very specific uh, situation. So you... 
need to be have chosen a position or get yourself into a position where you're talking to someone who who works with both areas. So if your boss is, um, let's say, the head of finance and, and he's hired you more for your financial background than, than his, you know, his, his visibility will be more, you know, his range uh, of, of view on your skills and your, his ability to, to um, judge them will be, you know, more focused on the financial side and he won't even maybe even be aware of some of the comms stuff that has to happen. So that's sort of a danger. You know that if you get, if you get, if you, if you're in a, come entering a company into, in a position where, you know, you have a boss who by nature of his own role has a limited view on what you, on one of one half of your equation, you're going to be a little bit pigeonholed and it's going to be hard to get out of that. If you're, if you're reporting to someone, if you're accepting a position somewhere, where you're reporting to someone who has a broader role, maybe the you know maybe the CEO or um, you know some reporting into a head of strategy or something like that, you you have a little bit more flexibility because that person will will be able to see both areas that you're that you're working in and and that you're active in and you're and and, and be able to judge whether or not you know you're contributing at, at an adequate level in both in both areas. Um, so. It's partly, it's a little bit beyond your control, but it is really important when you're making a move like this, who you're reporting to, who, how you're going to fit into that team, and does that team, you know, have the bandwidth to, to have both of these disciplines and judge both of these disciplines, or are you going to be um, actually one, one half or is going to be largely forget, forgotten or unassessed, uh, whereas the other half will become basically your whole job. Okay, so this is really about monitoring who you're reporting to before you accept the job and making sure that they understand the benefit of the dual roles, the dual expertises. Yes. So that they can represent you well. And that also has to help with the pigeonholing because they're not likely to put you in one box or the other. They're far more likely to see you broadly. Exactly. Okay, so, so far I've heard from you, um, first off, that you have to be able to see the adjacent areas yourself, that it has to make sense that the, that the skills that you have in one space actually enable in another space and vice versa, that I need a little patience waiting for other people to see the benefit of two different areas or your exposure from one being dragged to the other. Mm-hmm. I need a manager who understands that. And I need yep. to be really careful about managing my how I'm getting pigeonholed or labeled. I have to be conscious of that because otherwise it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Okay, now, and you've said that people kind of come along with you once they work with you. Mm-hmm. But getting to the point where they work with you is a big challenge, particularly getting trust. So give us an example. How have you gone about building that trust with people who are looking a little cross-eyed? I'm not so sure why you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, I, I, I guess my own style of, of, of working and it, you know, my, my own professional style is um, very much uh, collaborative and in that collaborative approach, it's easy for me to, in a sort of non-challenging or non-threatening way, um, suggest certain things or uh, advise in a certain way, um, pick up areas which have come to my attention, which, which uh, may not be obvious to my manager that I'm 
you know, you know, might have something relevant to say about that or, or thoughts on that that would help the company, help the organization. Uh, a concrete example, um, in, the, in the position I have now, uh, we noted that, that there was a, a more, um, more need for, let's say, keeping a close eye on um, uh, government affairs. And uh, we'd had that previously in the company in a more d- diffused way. I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a government affairs specialist. But because of the the type of information I've had to integrate and and what I understand uh, about the the dynamics of my industry, it became apparent to me that government affairs was something that I really felt I should keep an eye on. And I was able to um, convince my boss, who initially um, felt that you know government affairs was for a government affairs person, who you know it wasn't me. Um, that that actually that should be folded into my my package of of what I'm keeping an eye on, what I'm monitoring, and what I'm advising on, um, because of again the adjacencies. And that was purely, you know, incidentally things came up. I noticed that there were some things being discussed in the, you know uh, in Parliament that that actually we should probably be aware of and uh, mention that in meetings. In a in a kind of a, a quiet, you know, not very uh, aggressive way. Um, mentioned it a few times, and then, and then after had sort of built a little bit of a track record of, of suggestions in this area, which he seemed to uh, like, and which made sense, and which our whole team uh, seemed to go along with. Uh, I sort of uh, formally said, "Hey, is this an area that I can can also add to what I'm monitoring, and uh, and and that we all, you know, that my team also looks at this." Uh, and he said, "Yeah, I think that makes sense uh, to the extent that you know." from the point of view where you are now, yeah, that works. So a sort of gentle start, and then once you've sort of made, had a couple of opportunities to show um, show what your added value is, um, then sort of, then only then make a suggestion that it concretely be added into your responsibilities. I love that, Anne-Louise. It's this notion that it's a very gentle, gradual way of showing people a broader capability, Again, with a lot of patience. And it is a way in which you start to add value to something other people are not doing. But the way you're adding value, though, is by noticing trends, patterns, opportunities, issues that haven't been tapped that everybody else is ignoring or missing or too busy to pay attention to. And it's building a track record of that, of having noticed those things over time that make you far more credible in a brand new area. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, and the fact that you're there, um, doing something else actually, or something adjacent, indeed, and in again, mm-hmm. in this case, you know, gives you the bandwidth and the uh, share of voice, um, and you've, that that gives you sort of a platform on which you can deliver your ideas on this other area. Okay. All right. So, and again, we have this notion of I take the skill set that I have and look at the adjacent areas where I touch those adjacent areas. I look at ways in which my current knowledge is actually going to enable an adjacent area to do something that it isn't doing or could do better. And I gradually, steadily work towards that by adding value on it. And that's not inconsistent with what you said about your finance move to communications and back again. 
Okay, we're going to take a break. With me today is Anne Louise Metz. Anne Louise is currently a Director of Investor Relations, Marketing, and Communications at a listed company in the Netherlands, but she's had quite a varied career from being an editor to being a translator in the Russian Western oil joint venture to being in corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions and then back again to communications. And then when we come back, I want to talk about Anne Louise's transitions from one geography to geography to another geography and what it's like to work in different cultures. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Anne Louise Metz. Anne Louise is currently Director of Investor Relations, Marketing, and Communications at a listed company in the Netherlands. I should say, for those who are not obvious, she's from the U.S., but she has lived and worked in a broad range of cultures from Russia back to Europe or around Europe multiple times. So, Anne Louise, you've changed countries and languages and lived in different cultures several different occasions. So tell us a little bit about that experience of moving country and language. What was easy? What was fun? What did you find hard? 
Um, hmm, that's a great question. What do I find hard? It's I actually find I find it all um, really exciting. So I, I I've always wanted to live in different countries. That was a dream of mine from um, my childhood, and I've had a I, I have one big advantage that I would say probably is a little bit unusual, and that is that I I'm quite. Uh, I'm quite good at learning languages, and I and I really enjoy learning languages. So that has helped me a lot. Uh, what I like best about uh, about living in a different culture is um, just the, the 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 immersion in somebody else's mindset. What what is difficult about that, and what I sometimes found the most difficult is that, of course, it's it's exhausting to be continually uh, in somebody else's in somebody else's culture, in somebody else's environment, uh, that isn't your, it doesn't feel like it's yours yet. So the, 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 you don't feel like you're home uh, for a long, long time. And now I feel like I'm home in the Netherlands, but it, it, it's, it, it is a strain to be in a foreign culture uh, for any per- prolonged period of time. So how long does it take? Has it taken you typically to feel like you're at home? I think I have. I think I spent five or six years abroad before I, I stopped, you know, making comparisons with with uh, the states and and with you know my life back home in the states. I still consider the U.S. to be home. If I say I'm going home, I mean I'm going I'm going to New York. I'm going to visit my parents in New York. Um, I don't. Uh, but I do feel I don't feel the, the the stress of living in another country. Now I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable being out of the U.S. I, yeah, it really takes a few years. It's it's something, and and that's not to say that you know if you spend two or three or four years abroad uh, that you don't ever settle down enough to really enjoy it. You do, uh, but uh, before you before you don't even really notice that you're you know that you're there anymore and that it blends into um, uh, to your home country. Uh, that takes that takes several years. Well, and presumably learning the language makes that move a bit quicker for you. I can imagine that if you're in a place and you don't speak the native language, it could be longer than five or six years before it feels natural. I think that's absolutely right. And that, in that sense, um, working in countries or living in countries or visiting countries that you speak the language of, even if you don't speak it very well, but you have some type of working knowledge when you get there. Like I, I, when I moved to Russia, my Russian was terrible, <laughs> um, but it was good enough to sort of manage. And that, that got me started. And so, I, you know, have a fairly adventurous mindset to begin with. And I thought, okay, well, they can more or less understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and I can more or less figure out what they're trying to say. So we'll get there. Uh, but that was, um, that was that was quite extreme, certainly also because of the physical differences in terms of lifestyle between the U.S. and and, and Russia, but also the language is a tough language. Uh, other languages, um, you know, if you don't speak the language at all and you don't feel like you can learn it, then a long-term stay, I think, is somewhat isolating. Because even if you're in a country like the Netherlands where people speak really excellent English, and I mean... Really, everybody speaks good English here. Uh, you can feel quite comfortable here and make good friends here as a, as a native English speaker. Um, but if you really want to understand the Netherlands and you really want to understand the culture you're in and, and the social patterns around you, then you do need to learn Dutch. Um, 
which is it's kind of a weird language to learn. It's a fun language. I like it a lot, but it's not it's not something that most people can learn in high school, or uh, it's not a widely available language. So that that's absolutely you know linking the language that you may already know from French or something from high school or Spanish, even if it's a little bit, linking that to uh, to a place that you uh, that you're going to spend a few years. That I think makes it a lot easier. Okay. It's interesting that coming back to your comment about five to six years to feel, to stop comparing, to feel like it feels like I'm settled here, I understand it, I'm not working so hard to get my head around the culture. Typically when we do expat assignments and we send somebody off to another culture for the experiences of having that international experience, they're there for two to three years and often two to three years is driven more by tax issues than is by anything else. But by your experiences, that means that they actually haven't really, truly understood the local culture because they haven't had enough time to assimilate it. I think that's right. Uh, I stand by that, yeah. Okay, fair enough. That's not to say, that's not to say it's not a valuable experience. I mean, sure. I, I'm, what I, they don't need to, I mean, I've kind of gone native, you know. <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm completely assimilated into the Dutch, Dutch society now. That does does not not everybody needs to do that, and to have a meaningful broadening professional and personal experience in another country, you know, you don't sure. need to go to the ex, you know lengths that I've gone to. Sure, sure. But again, the language does help. All right. So now, what other advice do you have for people who are trying to transition to a different geographical culture, apart from the language? Well, there is a you know. The, 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 the first, I mean, a really easy one to just force yourself not to do uh, is to is to try to control yourself in terms of comparing with your hometown from day one. And so that's something that almost everybody does when, when you get somewhere, particularly if you haven't traveled a lot. And you get on the ground, and it's all much, you know, more complicated uh, than you than you thought it was going to be, and it's kind of a hassle, and you don't understand how the local authorities work, and it, you know, you can't, it's harder to get stuff straightened out. All of that stuff um, uh, takes a toll, and it's hard to force yourself not to think, oh, you know, when I'm in the states, I can you know, whatever, go to the supermarket at one o'clock in the morning, and I don't have to worry about shops closing at four or five o'clock on a Saturday or uh, not being open on Sunday or, you know, all of the local idiosyncrasies of where you are that you're not used to yet and that maybe are different in the States. So as soon as you sort of force yourself to just close that off, look, you're not, you're not home, you're here. Um, and, and, and there's no, uh, there's no benefit to be had by continually thinking about all the things that would be different if you were home and how much easier it would be. And just block that off. That's one tip. Okay, so presumably that also gets you out of critiquing the local culture, as in why is it that the shops aren't open here at a reasonable hour, or why is there such a restriction on the noise that you can make in the environment, or whatever else the local rules would have. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah, second one, so control yourself. Stop the comparisons. It is what it is. I'm here. How does it work here? Okay? Yeah, What, exactly. what other advice? Another thing that that's, takes that took me a really long time to figure out, uh, I'm still figuring it out, uh, is that you know you walk in not only with your language and your habits and your you know the food you like and all of the stuff that you take you know with you as as from your own culture. Our culture contains a sort of social model 
every culture contains a social model, and those social models are not visible, usually are not even, people are not even aware of them, and they, they, they affect how people interact and how people are expected to interact, uh, and what's considered rude, what's considered polite. And realizing when you walk into particularly a professional environment that the way people expect you to interact may be very different than what you think is is already a hugely valuable uh, tip in that, you know, it took me a long time to understand that some countries, some countries, you know, your boss would expect you not to speak during meetings where he is present with an external party or she. So they're, they're so hierarchical that criticism is never done when somebody else is around. Um, that's always done one-on-one, and particularly not from a subordinate to uh, a superior in the, in, the, in the pecking order of the company. And I mean, really, I'm, this is young people, you know, not, this, this is mid thirty people who are in their mid-30s, people who are not senior management, and still there's a, can be, in some cultures, a very rigid um, uh, perception of what you, you know, what you say in front of other people and what you say behind closed doors. So figure that out, and that, that might take a little while. You need to ask around, you need to try to under you know see what you know look at what you're seeing people are doing things a certain way for a reason stuff might not be discussed in a meeting which in you know your own country and then in the states uh, it might it might well be the natural forum to have a certain discussion to have a real brainstorm session to bat some ideas around and come up with something new whereas in a, in in some countries and some cultures the meeting, a meeting is not the place to do that. That's something you do behind closed doors, one-on-one. You check first what the person thinks of that idea before you launch it in the middle of a meeting where they might not want to have to say, I don't think that's a good idea, um, or, or, or be put in some type of position okay. that they don't want to be put in. Other cultures, you know, are, are this is welcomed, right? The Netherlands is an example of, of, of a very... Uh, a very unhierarchical culture. Uh, I happen to like that a lot. It's much easier for me to work in that type of environment. You, you, you know, you're respectful towards each other, and you're careful, of course, what you say in front of whom. But the the idea of you know I'm I'm higher in the rank in rank than you, and thus. I'm smarter, and so I'm the one who does the thinking, and you, you know, take some notes. Uh, that that type of attitude is not 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 present here, or or uh, and it does certainly not an overriding philosophy. But whatever the whatever it may be, you know, whether it's a, a hierarchical or not hierarchical, um, uh, the, how language is, you know, how people speak, talk about things, to describe things in very exuberant terms or in kind of quiet language. These are really subtle social cues that that. If you can pick up on that early on, you'll save yourself some, you know, tremendous embarrassment or uh, frustration if you don't understand why you can't get certain things done because you don't understand how to use the social structure that's around you. That makes a ton of sense to me, this understanding of the social model, the the perception you bring with you and your set of expectations and recognizing that may not be what your counterpart sitting around the table expect. Now, but I'm going to 
push back on this one because people say to me all the time, yes, I get that I'm different, but isn't that good because we all need to change and that other culture needs to come more towards a Western style of culture. What's your response to people who say that? Well, all of the cultures I'm thinking of are Western right now. <laughs> I, I just realized I should have said Anglo-Saxon rather than Western. Sorry about that. Mean, no, no, it's okay. I'm just thinking, you know, I, I think that sort of highlights that there's an assumption that that there there is, that this is sort of the way uh, many countries in Western Europe, uh, let's say it assumes a certain similarity between Western Europe and the U.S., which may not really be there. Um, and that's that's just a, a side point. I would I would say to that yes, diversity is important, um, and it's and it's useful. Uh, it's and, and however, it's you ha- if you want to be effective, you need to think about how you can create a position for yourself within the team, within the organization, which will allow you to be effective, and you know that may mean you have you know your background gives you different different ideas, different thoughts, uh, different um, uh, perceptions of, of the same issue that everybody else is looking at on your team. What you do with, those, with that input, how you get that across in an effective way, is a somewhat different thing. It's a, that, that you need a strategy for. Let, let, let's say, you know, here's a, here's a, I see an issue here. I think we need to hit it head on. Uh, I want whatever it is. You know, I see the elephant in the room. Uh, my my what I what I would like to convince everybody else to do is that we hit this one head on. Everybody else in the room may think that that's not the right way to handle it because it's a little bit too aggressive, maybe a little too American. So if I want to get my point of view effectuated, I need to convince the other people to go ahead and follow me on that. And the only way I'm going to convince them is if I know how to convince them, and that may well be. Um, uh, adapting to their social structure so that I can sort of get in their head effectively and then convince them that we need to, for example, address this elephant in the room in a certain way. And if, okay. I, can't, if I can't persuade them, then my differentness and my different you know, point of view will probably just be thrown overboard. Okay, fair enough like that and the difference is to just throw it overboard so this notion that I can still retain my own unique identity and perspective but I need to be sensitive to how that will be received in a different culture and in a different context and then I'm looking for ways to adapt what I do and how I do it so that the best ideas that I have are not silenced or I'm not withholding them but I'm understanding the path to persuasion for everyone else Exactly. It's about a, it's about having a strategy about how to get done what you think needs to be done. Okay. All right. I love that one. Okay, so Anne-Louise, I have three things from you, if I've understood all of this correctly, in terms of adapting to another culture. Um, one is that learning the language helps a great deal. Not necessarily mandatory, but it certainly helps, and that helps you get into the social patterns by doing the language with the local language. Two is to stop the comparison so that you're, you're stopping the criticism of this culture versus the culture that I came from and just accepting that here it works differently. Let me figure out how it works and what the local idiosyncrasies are about. 
And then three is really carefully examining your social model of how you expect to interact and to be responded to and learn the counterpart around wherever culture you're in, what their expectation sets are. And so you're looking for ways to adapt that make it comfortable. Yeah. Fair enough? Yeah, that's fair enough. All right. Fair enough. We're going to take a break again. Much more we could talk about on this one. I think I could go on for another hour on this topic alone. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to talk about transitioning from one company culture to another company culture. I get asked routinely from clients, what are different, because I work with different companies, what's it like with us compared to someone else? And I want to talk about changing company cultures. With me today is Anne-Louise Metz. Anne-Louise has had a variety of experiences, both in finance as well as in communications. Currently, she's Director of Investor Relations, Marketing, and Communications at a listed company in the Netherlands, but she's also moved around quite a few companies and quite a few geographical cultures. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back. With me today is Anne Louise Metz. Anne Louise is currently Director of Investor Relations, Marketing and Communications at a listed company in the Netherlands. Anne has worked in a variety of jobs from communications as well as finance and in multiple countries from Russia to Netherlands to a variety of European companies, countries, and she's also from the U.S. originally. Now, not only has she worked in different geographical cultures, but she's worked for dramatically different company cultures. And the focus I want to do right now is moving from one company culture to another one. So, and Louise, tell us about one of your transitions. What happened? What was easy, hard? What did you learn in making that transition from one company to the other? Hmm. Okay. Um how about we start with uh, when I was working in a small entrepreneurial company where I was one of the MDs. Um, we had a very, it was, it was a leading financial communications company here in the Netherlands, uh, had a very tight-knit team, 28 people in total, four, uh, four man, uh, managing partners, and it was really like a family it was, you know, literally we ate lunch together at the same table, at the table, you know, all together every 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 day in the kitchen. Um, we the company grew from 12 to 28 while I was there, and um, you, you know, it was a very 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 tight knit and and very informal, uh, hard working but very informal culture. And I went from from that. I did that for four or five years with uh, much pleasure, and um, uh, and then went from that into. Um, a company which is uh, a large, uh, uh, historically, you know, heavy um, multinational company that had a very strong uh, European culture, uh, very um, hierarchical and very, uh, or a certain type of European culture, very hierarchical and very um, almost clerk-like uh, bureaucratic uh, elements to it, which I'd never, never come across before. Very formal, very uh, old world, and um, it was quite a, quite a cold shower in a way. I bet. And so, did you know that that's what you were walking into when you took that job, or was it just more, even more intense than you'd expected? I didn't. I knew it was an uh, an old and important institution, and and that you know, with that type of gravity, that it would it would you know, bring with it some some formality. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't appreciated the extent to which that would be ingrained in the people, rather than just the building and the physical side of it. Um, and that you know, and, and the mindset was really very um, much less flexible than I had anticipated. Yeah. All right, so how did you navigate that? So here you are, you show up, you've been there for a month or two months, you've really gotten your head around, oh my goodness, this place is far more bureaucratic, formal than I had expected it to be. So how did you manage? You start figuring out what that means, um, what you have to do differently, what, um, you know, what, how, what, what limitations that brings with it. You start to realize that there's, you know, maybe that has um, implications for how your career is going to progress there that you hadn't necessarily seen before, and so that you have to think about how am I going to navigate this much more rigid organization with much more stratified um, 
uh, career path or, or let's say, less less appear, less apparent what the steps would be in that career path and um, in, indeed a very much pigeonholed uh, philosophy. You do this and that's what you do and, you know, don't do more and don't do less. Um, so how did I never... Yeah, I... I, I Tried a number of things and I didn't always I didn't always succeed. I tried to um, sort of move out of the role I was in. I did I did manage to to get um, some more responsibilities uh, allocated to me and, and and did make a nice promotion at one point. Uh, but I I had trouble uh, convincing my environment not actually not that I could do more than I was doing and not that I I think that people really did see me as uh, a valuable contributor to the team and to the organization, but the organization itself was so inflexible that I couldn't convince people to take the risk that they would have to personally take with their own position in the organization to, re- to restructure things to allow me uh, to, to progress professionally. Uh, and that ultimately, ultimately, I you know I left the organization after I stayed five years. Uh, um, I had a lot of fun there. I did a lot of uh, things that I really enjoyed. Um, learned a tremendous amount uh, on all kinds of levels. But at a certain point, I saw that I wasn't able to um, to ha- to to have the the growth in the organization that I would need that I felt I needed to continue my career progression. Okay, so this reminds me back at the very beginning when you were talking about transitioning from the finance into the communication and going across disciplinary lines, that you have to get people working with you and that as they work with you, they see the value you can add across the disciplines and that you can do more than one pigeonhole job. And what I hear you saying is that in addition to that tactic here, you have an organization that is much slower to move, much more rigid in its movement. And for individuals who even believe in you, they put too much of themselves at risk by taking a chance on giving you broader responsibilities. So it's not that one-to-one convincing, it's that even that senior sponsor now having to fit within the existing culture. That's right. That's absolutely right. Okay. All right, now talk for a minute about what it's like to go from either back to entrepreneurial. I want to contrast with an entrepreneurial culture and the large corporate. And the reason I want to say this is I talk to lots of young people who are enamored with the wonderful joys of entrepreneurial life. It's great, but it also comes with with some setbacks as well. So talk for a little bit about what that's been like being in the entrepreneurial space. Well, I did... um Two sort of stints of five years in as a you know I, in what I would consider entrepreneurial environments. One being uh, this this small company um, that you know that was very dynamic, very family like uh, for for about five years. And the other, uh, I actually went out in one point in my career and and started my own company um, with a number of initiatives that I that where there were a mix of finance and communications and uh, tried to build that up and in. In both situations, what I eventually ran into was the limitation that that environment put on my own learning and my own growing. In in the sense that uh, while I, I had, I, you know, I enjoyed myself very much and I did learn a lot about about communication. It was that communications role company that that really taught me communications as a discipline after having been having been schooled in finance. 
um, at a certain point, you sort of mastered that set of skills, more or less, and you're looking for the next level, and that's not there. And that, and that's that was to me a little bit the frustration of you know I and I and being you know sadly for better or for worse I'm not a good enough entrepreneur that I was able to build the company in some kind of amazing you know multinational of thousands of people so I guess that's more you know my own uh, my own inability to do certain things but I couldn't make it into more much more than it was I mean and I, and and it couldn't offer me in its form. Uh, let's say a way to continue developing um, over the next five to ten years, and that and the same thing happened in my in my uh, my own company that I had for a while. Um, did extremely interesting uh, deals and and you know ve- very interesting uh, time, but at a certain point, I really missed the added value that. Um, colleagues from a different background and really the cross discipline element, you know, would bring to a discussion as well as, you know, the idea that I was going to be spending another 40 years doing or 30 years doing whatever it was I was doing, and maybe that I would find a little monotonous after a while, that I didn't want to to be sitting here doing exactly the same work for the next 20 years, and if it was going to be, or 30 years, and if it was going to be my own company, it wasn't apparent to me how I was going to change that into something else. It's a, that's very interesting comment. One of the um, millennials, among several millennials, but one in particular that I talked to, a young man who's at an entrepreneurial firm at the moment, and loves it. Great experience, fabulous company. They're doing good things. You know, growth is happening. Not maybe not as fast as everybody would love. That's always the case with entrepreneurial businesses. But he's now ready to step up and take the next level, which means he wants to lead a larger team. But there's no capacity to lead a larger team. So you end up staying in a very pigeonholed spot. And you can't, there's not as many adjacent areas to go into. So I think people forget that about entrepreneurial space. So, Eloise, let me just go back. Do you have a checklist of things you go through in thinking about joining a new company, the critical issues about the culture that you want to check out? Do do you have a list like that? Or what do you think about when you're looking at a new company? Well, you know, a list sounds very formal. I would say I have, you know, as I walk into a company, certainly as I I joined the company I'm with now only uh, less than a year ago, and I'm very, I'm very happy with with this move and with this company. And certainly, I carried with me um, a, a number of, of of things that I liked and didn't like about my previous positions and and roles, and wanted to be sure that you know I understood how this organization uh, reacted or or was in, in in these various characteristics. So I knew, having been in a very rigid organization, which was very hierarchical that I absolutely wanted to have a, a, a mandate for a broader, a broader role. And the, the, the first conversation I had with, a, with, with uh, my manager when we were talking about me joining this company was actually about a much narrower role. Uh, it was about, you know, only investor relations. And I said straight out, you know, if that's, if that's, what it's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be too narrow for me. I'm not going to, you know, in, in a couple of years, I'm going to, I'm going to be tired of that, and I, I, that's not going to, that's not going to progress me in the way I want to go. I, I must know that there's some, 
you know, room for a broader mandate and, and some flexibility in how this is going to be set up. And, and he was able uh, to convince me that, that if I could prove myself that I would be given that room. Uh, and, and so that, you know, while, while we, it was, and we, I didn't get it all nailed down. I didn't get it all, you know, in writing and signed in the contract and this. It was really a handshake and, you know, trusting this, uh, this manager that, you know, he said, if you, you know, if this, these are areas where we need help, it looks like your background will work with that. And if you want to take more than, than this, you know, show me you can do it and I'll let you do it. And so that was one really important area, you know, understanding how flexible the organization is with regard to that. And it wasn't even so much the organization as him himself, because right. the rest of the organization was fairly surprised uh, right. by how, how that was set up. And Louise, we have to stop at this point. It's been fabulous. Lots of insights about transitions. I think if I summarize this one, I have the notion that wherever you're making a transition, you have to show value, that you're looking for transitions that capitalize on the adjacent areas that you can see you use your skills. You have to have a bit of patience for everybody to come along with you. You do have to have the right senior level support who can see you in a new role, and you have to be very careful about the pigeonholing so that you don't get too narrow. And Louise, thanks for sharing with us. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot, Wanda. Thank you. All right, next week we have Mindy Hall, and we're going to talk about leading with intentionality. Tune in then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.